0: Welcome to this KGNW broadcast special, Heart of the City. Pastors, ministry leaders, and churches have received a call to serve their communities with the love and compassion of Christ. The call is from God's heart to the heart of the city. Well,
1: this is Heart of the City. I'm Chuck Olmstead, the Director of Local Ministry Development with AM820 The Word. And I'd like to welcome you today. I have a special guest. His name is Keegan Lanker. And uh, he's the um, Gig Harbor Nazarene Church lead pastor. Welcome this morning, Keegan. Thanks for having me on, Chuck. <laughs> so um, I just had an opportunity to hear you speak about three times on the same topic, and uh, we were at Missions, Pas- uh, Missions Fest pastors' uh, luncheons here the last couple of days, and I want to be honest with you, I heard the same content but delivered in such a wonderful way that I was not bored any of the times. <laughs>
2: Well, that's nice of you to say. I, I'm. I, people say I'm. I don't usually need a microphone when I speak because I'm so passionate. So. Well,
1: you are passionate, <laughs> yeah. and uh, s- some wonderful stories. And uh, just briefly, tell me what you were doing with the Missions Fest uh, Pastors Luncheons. What was the? What was that about?
2: Yeah, well, I'm. I'm a. Uh, for the last uh, seven years or so, I've had the opportunity to partner with the uh, Fuller Youth Institute, based in Pasadena, California. Uh, navigating uh, some research that they've done over the really about the last decade with uh, a a first project called Sticky Faith and now one that's called Growing Young that really tries to take research and help to contextualize, bring about change within the local context of local churches um, to look at sort of intergenerational connections and the ways in which we can work intentionally uh, alongside of, of students, both adolescents and young adults, to keep them connected to the life of church communities.
1: And I know you spent probably 45 minutes sharing with us. How can you summarize that in, in about
2: 90 seconds? <laughs> well, I guess the best way to kind of describe that is, is that their research has identified that um, roughly, roughly about 40 to 50 percent of kids, uh, when they graduate from high school, um, Tend to, tend to drift away from the faith within 12 to 18 months. Um, these research projects really help to identify the problem, but then to really look at churches um, that are really navigating really well ministry alongside of young adults. And so the, the latest project really was analyzing what churches that are doing with young adults have the capacity to do, to connect, and help them bring about transformation, not just for their lives, but in the church. So we, they kind of identified Roughly about six core commitments um, that they identified in this research project of churches and what they're doing. So, a couple of them being kind of keychain leadership, navigating leaders that are helping to connect with young adults now that have a lot to offer the church. Um, Another one being sort of warm environments, places that are loving and embracing people of all ages uh, in ways that are helping them to say that this place is like family. Um, I'm grateful to be able to serve in a place right now in Gig Harbor that. That really, as I call them, my golden retriever church, because when they show up, they, you will just be loved on and embraced, and I have folks that just do that really authentically uh, really, really well. Well,
1: how long have you been at, at Gig Harbor Nazarene?
2: Well, I've actually just been there just a little over two years now, um, navigating, uh, initially started ministry down in Southern California, um, growing up in a small town in Southern Idaho and telling God I'd go anywhere and do ministry but Southern California. So I spent 13 years in Southern California, uh, but most recently in Pasadena. Uh, most of our family is really up here, and and when we got a phone call about this t- opening as in, to be a lead pastor in Gig Harbor, I asked my wife, uh, where's Gig Harbor? Yeah, where's Gig Harbor, Washington? And she, <laughs> yeah. I said, I have no idea. So we had to get on a map and realize that there's a lot of people that live west of Seattle, and that big landmass tied to Washington. And so we've been there a couple of years, moving from kind of a a fairly large kind of city mentality into a small town and learning to navigate that has been has been really fun and, and challenging.
1: Well you know what's interesting is is we've discovered uh, as a radio station that we have a lot of listeners in the Gig Harbor area. Wow. It's really it's fascinating to watch the demographic or see the demographic information in, in KitSAP and Tacoma and right. and some of the zip codes where we reach and it's fascinating to see Gig Harbor as one of the major areas where we have we have listenership, so it, it is interesting.
2: It's a, we've. It's, I've been a joy even the couple of years that I've been there. There's so many wonderful pastors in the Gig Harbor mm-hmm. area, and that there's really a collaborative effort, uh, sort of a, an understanding that we're we're partnered in ministry together right now at this time in history in Gig Harbor, and it's a joy to just be the body of Christ together. We're not concerned about church size. We're concerned about about being the kingdom and helping people to discover Jesus. One of the reasons I like
1: doing this story is you've, you've given me a little bit of a snapshot of what you're doing now, but I always like to find out how you got to the point that you're now in Gig Harbor ministering and being a lead pastor. What happened back there in Idaho in your life that brought you to this
2: point? Where, where, in, where in Idaho did you grow up? I grew up in a, a town called Twin Falls. That's about two hours south of Boise. Uh, I, as a, as a young kid myself, am a cancer survivor. I was diagnosed... Uh, Uh, with a a hereditary form of eye cancer that my dad had uh, and was diagnosed about nine months and um, didn't really know a whole lot about, obviously, not having any mental remembering of all of that. Um, Was clinically cured by the age of two, but as a very young age, uh, people used to tell me I had a a unique sensitivity to the things of the spirit uh, that... There was something about my heart that, you know, God had saved me for a reason and, and didn't really understand that or contemplate that a whole lot. But about the age of 12, I was I was sitting at a—I uh, was invited to go to a, a crusade that was cruising through our hometown. Uh, I remember it being a little over 100 degrees, and Dad dragged the whole family to the local high school football field to hear this guy who was putting on the Bill Glass crusade.
1: Got it. Um, right.
2: was a. Uh, came through town, and we had to go sit and listen to it i wasn 't thrilled about it, having grown up in the church, um, there was something that day that I heard the gospel message, and it was the Lord spoke to me and said it's time it 's time to start taking me seriously and I did that, and from that day, I knew my life was different and wasn 't the same anymore and and uh it was a little over a year later that i that I was attending a, a youth function up in north of Boise in a, in a small town where I went to college called Nampa, idaho and there was a speaker there that talked about giving your life to to the ministry, and at, at that time, at thirteen, I thought it meant I had to go live in Africa the rest of my mm-hmm. life. I <laughs> thought that's what a call to ministry meant, and so I remember sitting there knowing that this is what the Lord was placing on my heart to do, and, and so I just went forward and said, "Lord, I don't know what this means, but I really don't want to go to Africa. Yeah. I'm a I'm a mama's boy, and I love being at home." And so, um, thankfully, over the next several years, the Lord helped to navigate and shape my heart into this calling that I had, and. And I remember being a a junior high counselor um, at a camp and watching God just do some tremendous work in the lives of these middle school students. And I remember really distinctly being in the back of this space and hearing the Lord kind of say, are you really ready to give me wholeheartedly this call? I had had dreams of being a baseball player. I'm just passionate and love sports. And I kind of sat back and said, all right, Lord, if I got to go all in, I'll go all in. Well, I had gone home and told my mom about this experience, and she said, there's something it's time you hear. She said, back when you were receiving treatment in Portland, uh, when you were a baby, there was a, a, a believer, a nurse, who came to both your dad and I and said, we want you to write down on a three-by-five card everything, everything you hope for Keegan's life if God chooses to save him. And so I, my parents wrote down on that three-by-five card, and I was telling my mom this story when I was 15. She says, well, why don't you go up and read that card? It's sitting in my Bible. So she'd went, never shared that with you before. she never told me that. I'd never heard about it. And so I went upstairs and opened my mom's Bible, and there was this three-by-five card that had written all these things my parents hoped for my life if God chose to heal me. And everything at that point, up to that point in my life, had come true. And it was a really a, a confirmation in my heart that what God was shaping and calling me to do, my only response was yes. I'll, I'll always say yes and just go faithfully however God chooses to lead. And so from that point, I... Uh, the guy that actually, uh, when I graduated from college and um, did a year-long internship there in Nampa, I eventually started union youth ministry in, in Temecula, California. And a few years after being in in that area, the, the guy who had significantly shaped my life uh, in ministry, somebody I looked up to a lot, um, called me and asked me to come on staff in Pasadena, California. And he had somebody who'd mentored me for a really long time. I told him if I ever had the opportunity to work alongside him, it'd be a dream come true. Um, he, needless to say, happened to be the speaker at that event when I was 13 years old where I accepted a call to ministry. Wow. He happened to be that speaker and had walked with me all of those years. And so he was really, he really, really formational in my development in ministry. And so that's kind of how a little bit about my calling yeah. and how it's been shaped by God. And
1: yeah, so. it's amazing to see that that input for a, in a young person's life i mean i i don't have you know the the cancer story but i think about them i grew up in a church and 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 i think about the people who put into my mm-hmm. life over the years yeah. and the mentors that i had and, and uh, you recognize the investment that they made and, and still have friendships they, in fact i sent an email to the guy who is my youth pastor yeah. who i eventually worked for and worked alongside of and we've been uh, since I was uh, 12 years old, you know, my my mentor. So it's almost been 50 years, yeah. you know, and you see those investments uh, back then and what's happened, you know, since then.
2: It's amazing to see how people often see things in you that you don't yet see in yourself, of people who say, not only do we see this in you, but we believe that God has uniquely created you in these particular ways. That There was a guy in my home church in Twin Falls that uh, his name was Cliff Hinkle, and he was one of those guys that we kind of shared the affinity and a love for sports. And when I was at every time I'd show up at a sporting event that we happened to be at, he would just turn and ask me, "Hey Keeks, everything good?" Hmm. He'd always check in on me, and we never honestly ever talked about faith. He ap- attended my church, and he'd find me on a Sunday morning and always say, "Hey Keeks, everything good?" Yeah, Cliff, everything's good. And when I when I was little, I I, I have a, a love affair with the yellow mustard and have for many, many years. And Cliff knew this about me. And so on my high school graduation Sunday, um, we had all these tables where you could sort of give gifts and cards. And on that table was a one gallon tub of mustard with a ribbon around it and a note <laughs> from Cliff that said, I figured you needed to start your college years off on the right foot. Love Cliff. And uh-huh. then five years later, at my after I, I did a wedding reception there, there was another gallon of mustard with a ribbon around it that said, I figured you needed to start your ministry or your marriage off right, Love Cliff. (laughs) And when I moved to Gig Harbor, Washington, four months into it, I received a one gallon tub of mustard in the mail from Cliff saying, I figured you needed to start this lead pastor off on the right foot. Wow, Love Cliff. So he's been (laughs) just a guy that's just spoken into my life at random points, but he knew who I was and he's somebody that's believed in me from a very young age. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you got to tell me a little bit about your mom and dad because, you know, obviously there was some sort of faith in their heart and some sort of insight in their life uh, and some sort of spiritual walk for them to have, you know, have the faith and have the um, desire as they wrote that note when you were going through yeah. cancer.
2: Yeah. To hang out with my parents is, uh, it's, my dad's probably one of my best friends in the whole world. There's, there's one thing my dad did significantly well. It's he modeled and lived out faith in our home. Um, there wasn't really a day that I remember in my childhood where when I went downstairs, I didn't see my dad's Bible open on his armrest of his chair. And I know that, number one, he'd spent time in the Word, that he'd, he'd connected with his Lord. And and on, on I used to snoop through his Bible and find his prayer list, and at the top were the names of all of his children, all their initials. And very mm-hmm. regularly my dad would say, hey, you know, I love you, but I prayed for you today. Wow. And those were constant daily reminders. My mom, my mom's somebody who's just always been a, a, a servant's heart. You know, she passionately cares about people, and it doesn't matter. She doesn't know strangers anywhere that she goes. And so you see, you quickly discover her authenticity and just how she lives her life. And so being able to have that modeled for both of my parents into my life has significantly contributed to the formation of my own faith and, and kind of living out that calling as yeah,
1: well. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a heritage, my friend, that a lot of of us, a lot of people don't have. Absolutely. You know, and uh, I'm grateful for for my godly parents, too. I mean, my dad was a believer, my mom was the praying one, you know, and I remember as a little kid standing on the kitchen steps before I headed for grade school and her hand on my head praying for me before I left in the morning, you know. And those memories stick with a kid for a long time, which speaks to us as parents, too, Absolutely. what those uh, activities do for our kids. Absolutely. So you end up in Pasadena. Yeah. Talk to me about what's going on there,
2: then. Uh, as a parent or as, as <laughs> in ministry? As or? a mini- in
1: a ministry. You end up becoming a youth pastor in Pasadena?
2: Yeah, I started for five years in Temecula. That's kind of initially where I, okay. I cut my teeth in ministry. And then after about five years, I I transitioned uh, to Pasadena to work along Scott Daniels there. and And... Within a couple of years, I kind of had shown up and was a little bit of a disgruntled or frustrated youth pastor in some capacities. I was frustrated as I was looking at the lives of kids that I had spent years mentoring and walking with and discipling and kids that were leaders in my youth group and just watching their faith dissolve so quickly and kind of left me with this big wonder of why. What What is it that I'm doing in ministry that may be contributing to this anemia of faith? So I kind of went on a journey to discover both what am I doing and how am I contributing, knowing I wasn't fully responsible for all that. But maybe there was an element in their formation that I was contributing to this. And so that's kind of how I came across the work uh, at the Fuller Youth Institute with with Kara Powell and Brad Griffin and and the good folks at FYI. And they had just finished their first research and said that we we not only like research, but we really want to help churches contextualize this uh and see if we can help bring about change and so it just lit this fire underneath me because everything that they had received and learned in this first research was stuff that i had experienced firsthand and so i really went on a journey with them to discover what is it that we could do and think and dream about in our local church in pasadena that could really begin a paradigm shift uh, in the dna and identity of that church community yeah it was it was an incredible incredible journey that I got to go on with them, both successes and failures along the way that we got to experiment uh, and try as we learned.
1: Well, one of the things that you said in the pastors' luncheons, and I, I having grown up in the church and and was a youth pastor for a few years, uh, you said that fifty percent of the of the average um, young per- person, the average young person, fifty percent of them leave the faith at, within eighteen months after yeah. high school.
2: Yeah. And yeah, and that's, and that was sort of the, probably the biggest heart rate, heartbreaking moment of the whole thing is that I just sort of recognized these were kids that were leaders and been in Christian homes. And I saw that the statistics were no different. And so part of that exploration led me to what does faith formation look like in the home? Um, Reggie Joyner in his work with Think Orange says that the average influence a pastor has in the life of a student a year is about 40 hours Where's the average hour, uh, average amount of influence a parent or guardian has is over 3,000 hours. And at being a youth pastor and only focusing on youth, I recognized that I was already limited in my ability to be influential in the lives of kids, and it meant that I needed to get into the lives of these families. And so even my own experience with many of those parents, as um, I would ask questions about what what does faith look like in the home for you, and many were just so so hesitant to say, man, this is, that's an intimidating topic. We don't know how to talk about faith. Praying with our kids is really scary. So I re- And these were families that had grown up in the church. Mm-hmm. And so I recognized that a shift needed to take place in what we were intentionally thinking and doing and uh, what we were about. Um, probably the most eye-opening element of that first project with Sticky Faith is that we had randomly grabbed 20 students and said, can you articulate the testimony of your parents? Um, not one of those 20 could do that. And so as we as I was sort of contextualizing with my parents, I was asking them, have you ever told the testimony of faith to your your kids? Not one of them had ever done that. And so here were parents that were really hoping that their kids would experience Christ and love the Lord in ways that they never had, but weren't sort of talking about it actively or living it in ways. And so we began to sort of sort of sift through how do we begin to just Start a basic faith conversation with your children, and when we want, when we expect, and hope that they they are loving the Lord better than we ever have, it's got to be an active practice in the home as well.
1: Well, you were ta- you were sharing today that, and this is something that I I think I've said on the air before. Um, my biggest regret as a parent: my kids, my daughter turned forty this year, my son's thirty eight, and my other son just turned thirty five. Right, so grown and gone. Yeah. My biggest regret is that. I emphasized their behavior as mm-hmm. opposed to their relationship with Jesus. Yeah. And the relationship with the Church became more important, and especially as a staff member sure. and as somebody who grew up in that church mm-hmm. and then became a staff member, their behavior and and modifying their behavior was more important, and the image they projected was more important to me yeah. than teaching them the relationship with Jesus. That's the biggest regret I have as yeah. a parent, because I recognize— I don't want to say too late because the Lord is still working in their lives, but but I recognized that that and you t- you spoke about that today.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. The Dallas Willard is one that's helped us with that uh, in some of his work uh, would talk about what we call the gospel of sin management um, in sort of ways that has taught we've taught in some ways the gospel in North America to kind of say things like. We're really, really interested in, in getting you to just behave yourselves. So we taught them a gospel of behaviorism. And so we began to think if we can just get people to behave themselves and just manage their sin, then we're doing our jobs. Whereas Dallas said, it's really about the kingdom of God now and how do we experience Christ in really authentic and true ways uh, in, in our everyday world. And so what, what, what Dallas began to say is that we've got to preach a gospel that's saturated in grace. And out of that becomes behaviors that align us with the character of who God is. I came from a tradition uh, historically that had walked through a, a strong season of legalism. And I remember when I gave my faith this Bill Glass crusade, nobody really came alongside of me and said, okay, now that you're a believer, this is what you do. Thankfully, I had parents that modeled what how to live that out. But I there was sort of this... Sort of this idea that you've just now that you follow Jesus, here's the list of things that you should be doing, and now that you follow Jesus, here's the list of things that you shouldn't be doing, and I got so consumed by how I was supposed to behave that I was really missing out on the true depth of authentic love that has been granted to me through the grace of the Lord Jesus, and so, and so I began to look at as we talk about preaching at all, as uh, looking at Paul's letters. He's a great list maker that Paul. And he writes some tremendous things that are some of those behavior things, but all of those fall under the umbrella of grace. If you read the first part of many of Paul's letters, they he just saturates it in grace. And so early on in ministry, I had started talking to kids about behaving themselves and about these behaviors, and I was so disappointed when they didn't behave themselves but recognize that what I was teaching them was just about a gospel of behaviors, and it shifted within me how we began to look at the gospel. As
1: well. well, please share uh, as well that you you had another story about a, a what what did you call it conflict night at at, at youth <laughs> at youth group. And, yeah. and you know, I, I look at back at some of the things I did as a youth pastor, and I'm thinking I, I didn't have the only conflicts I had were kids fighting with each other. But you <laughs> you had a conflict night, which was pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, we We I just recognized that it was as this this research sort of invited me to learn that part of youth ministry means that I have to enter into uncomfortable waters. And that meant that parents wouldn't always necessarily be happy with me. And, but I recognized that the contributing factor of how I was contributing this had to do that. I was just feeding kids baby food formation and they were looking for real spiritual depth. And so I just came in and did a conflict night. We picked five hot button topics that were going on and we had discussions about it. And one of them happened to be, um, if you have to kill somebody in war, is that murder, yes or no, and so that was just one of the questions I asked in that night and made kids choose sides, yes or no, and at the end of that night we were able to sit down and I said, well, many of us in this room call ourselves followers of Jesus, so who's right and out of that sort of came some affirmation from my lead pastor saying, um, we give you permission to to wreck our kids' lives for the sake of kingdom of, for the kingdom of God, and I knew I'd was entering into new waters for me as a youth pastor because I knew youth ministry wasn't going to be safe anymore. But I also recognized the gospel's messy, and it's not always easy. And students oftentimes are wrestling with hard, thick, difficult issues every day, and they're coming to the church saying, what's the church going to say about this? How are we to respond as the people of God? So.
1: Well, and it is hard because a lot of times the parents, uh, parents want you to be kind of the answer guy for their kids so that when they have that that time of stress in their lives and whatever conflict's going on, that they'll be able to come to the top of the mountain and get the message from the youth pastor of, this is the way you should go, and it's going to support what the parents think. Right. And then all of a sudden you've got a youth pastor that's saying, hey, I, I don't know. I mean, right. the, the, you know, there are, these things are issues that I don't necessarily have an answer for.
2: Yeah, and one of the, one of the things that we learned from this research is sometimes the greatest response you can give to a young adult or somebody that's younger is, I don't know, but... I'm willing to walk with you and discover the answer together alongside of you. Because so often we can be just so dismissive. And the parents that oftentimes got worked up about this, it oftentimes had to do with that They were wrestling with those issues themselves and, and having to wrestle it with their kids because they didn't know how, where they had come to or where they had found an answer. They didn't know what to do. We learned through this research that oftentimes it's unexpressed doubt that is toxic to faith formation, and we got to be communities that engage doubt and questions and the hard questions within the church.
1: Keegan, we've got about 30 seconds left. Next week, we're going to talk some more with you about your life story with your son who went okay. through cancer. So thank you for joining me today. We've been uh, speaking with uh, Keegan uh, Leichner, and uh, he's the lead pastor at Gig Harbor Nazarene Church in Gig Harbor. Thanks for joining me
2: today. Thanks, Chuck.
0: You've been listening to this KGNW special, Heart of the City. For more information about how your pastor or ministry can be featured on 820 AM The Word, Call Chuck Olmsted at 206-269-6216 or go to eat20amtheword.com.